G'day all, welcome to the Highly Adequate Podcast. My name is Desi, I'm content developer and podcast host. This podcast is part of a series where I continue to interview people from cyber and they come from all different backgrounds and we get to understand their pathways to where they got today. If you're interested in learning more, jump into my Discord server. You can grab an invite from my website, highlyadequate.com. But for this week, I'm joined by Jacob. Welcome, Jacob. Hey, Desi. How you doing? Now, I got lied to. We were talking about this just before we started recording, but uh, I was told you were the GRC guy, and I was like, you're going to be defending all GRC analysts everywhere. And then you tell me you're in pen testing. So now we can just spend the episode ripping on uh, GRC. But I'm sure we'll, we'll dig into your, your GRC pass, because you did mention that it's only recent that you've started this year, right? That you were doing pen testing? Yeah, that's correct. Okay, cool. All right, so we'll jump into the first question that I ask everyone, and that's what is a normal workday like for you? Sure. So, well, I'm currently working as a penetration testing team lead at CyberCX. And as I'm a team lead, my role is a combination of kind of internal tasks as well as project delivery. So I do about 50 to 60% penetration testing on like a weekly basis. And then the rest of my time is taken up by internal activities. I manage a team of six people. So a lot of time is spent upskilling them, you know, going, doing goals development and things like that. And also planning their upcoming work, making sure they're feeling well supported. They're getting a variety of different engagements and not doing the same type of testing over and over again. They can you know, develop their skills and also just tracking all of their projects as well. Are they going over budget? Um, do they have the right requirements in order to get the testing done? Like, for example, web application pen testing, one of the standard requirements is credentials. Do they have those credentials so they can actually test functions of the app that are available after authorization, things like that. I also do about 10 to 20% of my role as pre-sales. So customers will reach out to us and say, hey, we want a pen test. We've never done one before. Uh, we'll interview them, understand their business, their kind of background, understand what they're trying to achieve with the test. Is it a compliance exercise? they trying to really understand you know what their environment is like and then kind of recommend what we think they should do i'm also doing a bit of practice development which is i head up the physical penetration testing service so i run like a monthly meeting of that and do a lot of internal intellectual property development trying to make our service a bit more consistent and repetitive so that when a customer goes to any state they'll get the kind of same look and feel when they get physical pen testing done yeah, that, that's kind of what my day to day is like. Yeah, wow, you're kind of like all across the, the shop doing doing a bit of everything, aren't you? So where where are you based as well? Like which state are you in? Yeah, I'm based in uh, Perth, Western Australia. Right. Okay. Yeah. And then how how big is your team? Like how how do you find that doing? Because it sounds like you you do your own job and then you've got the kind of people management on top, which could be quite challenging. So how many kind of juniors or subordinates do you have within your team? Yeah, so I have six people that report to me, and then I will report to our kind of state director. Our team in WA is probably one of the smaller teams in terms of the country, just being in Perth, a bit further away from the East Coast. So we've got about 10 to 12 testers in in Perth. Some of them are in more specialised teams, like adversary simulation or red teaming. We've also got one person in our application security team. So those people have reports that are outside of Perth. Um, is there in more specialized roles? I have six penetration testers in my team and uh, a, a varying level of years of experience in, with those people. Some people that have a one-year experience, some people have more like three, four, five years experience. So let's step back a bit, little bit to the job you had before you got into cybersecurity. Before CyberCX, you were part of one of the, were you part of one of the original companies? Yes. Yeah. So before that, what were you doing before you got into cyber? Honestly, before I got into cyber, I was doing a lot of weird things, to be honest. Excellent. <laughs> I, was... <laughs> I, love, I love hearing the like weird and wonderful tales of people pre-cyber. Yeah. So I have my like official job and then all the stuff I was doing on the side. So like my main job at the time, I was working for a um, events management company that runs music festivals and I was doing digital marketing and physical marketing. So a combination of managing like the Google AdSense managing like Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Spotify, marketing, all that sort of stuff, but also doing the event management on the night. So 
uh, they would run a once per year music festival on New Year's Eve, as well as they'd run monthly like nightclub events with you know around three to five thousand attendees. So managing basically running the event on the night. I have a pretty funny story if you want me to share it about one of those events. It's oh, definitely go. Also, go the most stressful thing I've experienced in my life. Yeah, so we had an event that was running on like a Friday night. It was a dubstep event, so the average attendee is you know around eighteen to twenty-one. We had some international artists playing, but what happened was is someone had stuffed like a baggie down a toilet and blocked it, and then it started overflowing. But the toilets were on the same level as the like dance floor, so all this like you know sewage was coming out of the toilet onto the oh. dance floor. And now the only toilets in the venue, and it's a health hazard, right? So people, if they left the venue, couldn't get back in. And we also couldn't let anyone else back in the venue. And there was about 500 people waiting outside to get into the venue. And I called a, like a 24-hour plumber. He was like, yeah, I'll be there in three hours. And I'm like, oh, God, like, we need to get this event going, you know? So we're stalling all the artists, you know, trying to get them to stay back. But some of them have got other gigs to play in the city on, on the same night later on things like that and you know people are getting to fights outside and also to top things off this was the first night that i was running the show by myself and my boss was at the races with his mates so he wasn't picking up the phone <laughs> so it was a very interesting night but it all worked out in the end <laughs> yeah I, I guess to add that has work ever been as stressful as that night or, or do you always look back at that and you're like no matter how bad like a customer engagement goes it's not as bad as shit on the dance floor. <laughs> you know, that's a really good way to think about it. I mean, to be honest, I haven't been involved in too many like active incident response scenarios, so I don't really have anything to compare it to. I've had definitely some stressful moments over the years, but I think that that probably tops it in terms of most stressful situations. I, I think you would probably be a good incident responder because I think all incident responders have that that story where we're all like, nothing's as stressful as this thing that happened in my life. And it's kind of like your baseline for anything else that happens. And you're like, all right, I hold on to that. I can deal with this situation. A funny story, how I actually got into that job in the first place was I was, I was a DJ and I wanted to basically DJ at these events. And so I thought if I work there, it'll be easier for them to book me, right? And so the way I got the job was I built a Python scraper to scrape attendee data from Facebook events. Basically use it to build like a custom database of people who attend events so when you do digital marketing, it's much more focused. You target people who are actively attending events rather than people who might like a certain page but aren't, aren't interested in actually attending. So your like cost per ad view was reduced significantly and things like that. But yeah, but I was also doing WordPress development on the side, kind of just not through Fiverr or anything like that, but just through word of mouth referrals. And I was also running a bot farm on a mass multiplayer online game called RuneScape and selling the gold to Chinese farmers at the time. So yeah, a lot of weird stuff on the side, but kind of anything to make a buck really. There's some very interesting side jobs that are like within the realm of technical. Where did you go from there? Like, so how did you transition from what you were doing? And particularly, it sounds like you had some technical skills into an actual cyber job. Yeah, for sure. So. To be honest, all these jobs I was kind of just doing on the side whilst I was at university. And I knew that eventually after I finished my degree, I would kind of actually transition into the space I wanted to go in. I didn't study cybersecurity specifically, though. I studied counterterrorism, security and intelligence, and then majored in cybersecurity. And so I wasn't really sure until I kind of got towards the end of my course whether I wanted to go down the counterterrorism pathway or the cybersecurity pathway. I had an opportunity to move to ASD uh, in Canberra, but when I finished university, I was only 21 uh, and, and based in Perth, I thought, oh, I don't really want to move to Canberra and pay $500 a week for an apartment. Good, yeah, good, um, <laughs> good choice. Canberra's, Canberra's lovely to visit, too expensive to live and winter's horrible. Yeah, exactly. So at the time, you know what? I'll stay with mum and dad, rent's free. So yeah. <laughs> good choice, good choice. And, and, and went into cybersecurity. And, and honestly, I'd always been interested in cybersecurity from a young age. In high school, I was involved in like a startup pitch to like Bankwest investors. Didn't get any funding though, but definitely learned a lot from the process around like WordPress development and things like that. But how I actually got my first job was kind of by luck, to be honest. I was attending like a charity conference for um, a youth mental health um, like charity. 
And I met someone there who knows Sven Ross, who's the co-founder of Diamond Cybersecurity. And I was just chatting to them about what I was studying. And they said, hey, um, do you, I know a guy. Do you want to have a chat to him maybe? And they organized a meeting for coffee with me and Sven. And I basically told him my situation. He said, you know, we do internships. If you'd like to do one, I'm happy for you to do it. And that was kind of my in. I did a kind of three to four month full-time unpaid internship, but I learned way more in the first month even than my entire degree. And I was basically hooked. And um, after that, I was offered a full-time position uh, in GRC and I accepted it. Like Luck's probably selling yourself a bit short. Like you had all those skills that you'd kind of been doing in the background. And then I, I think it's a common thing that people that come on this podcast, it's networking, right? Like the fact that you were there and you put yourself out there to chat to someone. It was maybe just luck that they were at the same event. But yeah, you had all those skills in the background anyway. So that's a re that's really cool that you also able to do the, the internship, I guess, as and accept that. So was the counterterrorism cybersecurity, the counterterrorism was the ASD offering. So you, you would go and, okay. Yes. And so then you kind of like hung back and were just like, I'll just see see what's happening. So in that interim, you were still doing this DJ job and or event organizing yeah. and then, yeah. Okay, cool. How did you find the the majoring in cybersecurity at the time? So when did you, when did you graduate? I graduated in June, 2019, but I would have graduated earlier, but I decided to do that internship. Uh, I only had one unit left and that internship was equivalent to four units. So I could have actually done three less units, but I bolted that on towards the end and extended it by six months. But yeah, it was actually a really good experience. I'm, I'm glad that I went to university uh, for myself in terms of where I was in my life at the time. You know, I'd rolled when I was 18, had absolutely no self-discipline, had no motivation to kind of, you know, get stuff done. But if I was to revisit doing university, kind of at my age now, like mid to late 20s, I probably wouldn't do it, to be honest, because of the cost involved. But for me, it was beneficial at my kind so of So do you think life. that that was the most that you got out of it? Or not the most, but do you think that was the, the critical piece that you got out of university was learning that self-discipline and self like maybe self-study mechanisms and that kind of thing rather than because you said like your first month you learned more technically than you did in your whole career or in your whole degree so it was more the soft skills in uni like internally yeah i think it was definitely the just being able to be disciplined coming to class on time having a schedule learning how to write properly like i almost failed english in high school uh, so if I had been thrown into a job at 18, you know, trying to write reports for customers, it would, they would have been really appalling. So learning how to write a deliverable for a customer, uh, learning how to you know, communicate, do group projects, as painful as they are, uh, do, you know, uh, presentations, you know, as much as you feel like you have anxiety and your legs are shaking and things like that. All those sort of things are super important, particularly when you're going into consulting, which is what I did. But yeah, I, I think... You know, another thing that I kind of regret, which I didn't do at university, was actually do any programming classes because I did a counterterrorism unit. Whilst it was a computer science like faculty or school, because it was a major in cybersecurity, I only did eight units in cyber out of 24. So majority of my course was actually physical security, terrorism, like studying counterintelligence, uh, radicalization, things like that. Now that I'm doing a bit more threat actor research in my kind of spare time, some of those things are definitely coming back and were useful. But yeah, I think that there's all the stuff that I learned in my degree, I could have learned from an online, you know, sign up to Cybery for like 30 bucks a month. You know what I mean? Like going on YouTube and looking at John Hammond or Cyber Mentor or, or sort of those sort of things. Yeah. So once you've moved into Diamond Cyber, have you gone and done like a master's, any TAFE courses, other certifications that have helped you, or has it kind of just been all on the job learning for you? Uh, it's been a combination of on the job and also like certifications. Now, if I can say which one's more important, it's on the job. Uh, nothing is more valuable than like being actually assigned to a project and learning through experience, uh, making mistakes, particularly like fucking up, you know, something for a customer and realizing 
shit, I got to fix this myself. And I'm, you know, no, no one's coming to save me. You know, that's the best way to learn. The certifications are good when you want to get a little bit of experience in something that you haven't really tried yet or might not have the opportunity in your current line of work to try. After I graduated and started my internship and, you know, kind of was six months in, I did the CISSP as an associate, like the associate status. Um, and that was really good to kind of round out my general security knowledge. And I felt it was important at that stage because I had a degree, but not in cybersecurity, just a major. And I needed something to kind of validate that I, you know, deserved to be there and have that job sort of. But later on, you know, I did a few other random certs and things like that and blockchain security and stuff. But recently this year, I finished the uh, Burp Suite Certified Practitioner for like about testing. Uh, that was really good. Uh, really good. I actually, I did the exam in two days, uh, in one day, sorry. I sat the exam, failed it. It's a four-hour exam. And then immediately reset it up and passed. So it was actually really good. It was one of those exams, though, that because you only have four hours to exploit two web apps, like if you burn an hour, like it can actually seriously impact you. So time management is super critical for that one. Yeah, that's definitely, that's like their course and certification has been on my list. Like I've got a few certs that I always say when I've got time, which is never that I want to get through. And the burp suite one is, is definitely one of them. But um, yeah, it's cool to hear that. I, like I actually don't know anyone else that's done it. So that's cool that um, you rate it. Yeah, there's one other guy in Perth that I saw on LinkedIn that has done it. But I don't know too many people have done it. I think about, about two years ago when they first released this cert, you could like attempt the exam for a dollar. Uh, now it's a hundred US dollars. That's still not bad, right? Like a hundred bucks for a cert is pretty, pretty good for a tool that's like really practical and everyone uses it. And another thing that people forget, a lot of people rush OSCP as a pen tester for their first cert, but the most sold pen test is a web application or an API pen test by about five to six fold compared to external network or internal network testing. So definitely OSCP is important. But if you want to convince an employer that you're like ready to go as a pen tester, getting like a burp suite exam test done or like OSWA or OSWE from OFSEC, uh, which are all web app testing certs, like that is something that I would put to the kind of priority list for new testers. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. It's like, I haven't spoken to too many pen testers on the podcast, but the people that I've spoken to that do pen testing, like whenever they join a company, it's the first thing that they get put on is web app pen testing. Everyone that I know that has been in pen testing and moved on to do something else kind of have wanted to do like the more sexy attacking active directory and moving across domains and everything else. And then they get in, they're just like, ah, oh, I'm just doing my 20th web app pen test for like the quarter kind of thing. But yeah, I guess you're right. If it's, if it's what's selling, then people need to do it. Absolutely. After the BSCP, I did the OSCP, and then I did the CRTO, which is the 0.75 rating. Oh, yeah, yeah. How'd you find that? I started that course when they first released it, and then I never finished it. I honestly, all three of these certs, I did each in about two months. I kind of just grinded them, to be honest. I wish I kind of went through them a bit, a little bit more slower and might have remembered a bit more, to be honest. The CRTO course, I tell you what, is really good. Rust and Mouse, who created the course, has put in a significant amount of work. I would say the CRTO was probably one of the better ones out of all of the three. Actually, can't really compare it to BCP. That was quite different. But the reason it was better is the content. One thing I'm sure you can relate to is after doing a lot of certifications, a lot of study, there's a lot of filler in a lot of these courses and books and stuff. And it's kind of really exhausting and time consuming. And this course was to the point, no bullshit gave you all the physical practical examples of how you could learn everything from the course and the labs were very easy to use they were um, browserless so through apache guacamole in the browser so you basically remote into a machine all the tools are pre-installed and you just get straight into hacking so there's no time to waste really and it's it's very easy to consume also the exam they give you 48 hours to complete the exam but it's over four days so you can pause and play it so it's not like the uh, uh, OSCP where you literally stay awake for 24 hours straight. Yeah, that was you rough. Get any sleep. Yeah. yeah. I mean, either way, if they if they have the right amount of content, it's still about time management, right? Because if you've got four days, but it's four days worth of content, you still need to manage those 48 hours that you can use. So OSCP taught me to like 
not burn myself out to like have a normal work day and be like in my first day I want to achieve this and then I'm going to sleep and then the next day I'm going to achieve this and yeah if I weren't hit wasn't hitting the mark then I knew it'd be rough the second day yeah going back to Rasmus so what made me do his course is because he did one of the uh, hack the box pro labs and I was it offshore I can't remember what, which one he made it was one of the early three um, but I did that and loved it. It was like I learned so much doing a pro lab because there was so much research involved and each stage was like learning some new exploit, whether it was like web app, like password vaults, moving across the domain, whatever. And then I was like, oh, he's got a course. So I started doing it. And then I got, I think then I started at CCX myself at the time and just got too busy. So I, cause I was blue side. So I just kind of dropped it. Um, but I saw he recently updated his course as well. So I'll, I'll post that in the show notes for the listeners um he's got a discord server and um we'll post the search that you're talking about as well um that if people want they can go have a look at it so i guess moving on you moved into grc you're now pen testing you've made a bot farm so game hacking selling to the chinese what what kind of areas would you classify and and you've done counterintelligence at uni like it seems like you've kind of touched almost everywhere in cyber have you done any dfir before so i did do like a four month secondment in dfir in the threat intelligence team at cybercx it was a bit difficult at the time i was doing two days a week grc three days a week uh, threat intel and uh, that was honestly really hard in hindsight i should have just gone all in threat intel for like six months um, and then kind of made a call so i did that for four months i think the team was a bit mature at the time and i just couldn't really commit to it and I basically went back to GRC after that. I still have a big interest in threat intelligence, particularly like the more tactical side of threat intelligence. But I can't say that I've had enough exposure to it yet to kind of make an evaluation on it. So how long did you do GRC for before you've... So you graduated in 2019 and then started 2023. So you were doing GRC that whole time? Yeah, so I was doing GRC from January 2019 until march this year so about four years and three months four of those months would have been uh threat intel and then about yeah six to nine months of pen testing what made you swap like why decide all right i've had enough of grc to be honest i i mean i always knew i wanted to move on from grc um to be honest when i first got into cyber and i did my internship uh, in the internship sat, sat down with sven and he said what did you enjoy the most and i said Whilst, because in the internship, whilst I was in the GRC team, because we're a small company of five people at the time, we kind of did a bit of everything. I did a bit of phishing, I did a bit of instant response and stuff. So I had a a, kind of a broad exposure to different pieces of work. And he said, yeah, what did you enjoy? And I said, digital forensics was sick, pen testing was sick, and yeah, GRC was good. And he was like, well, we only have a GRC position available. And I said, that's cool, I'll do that. Because, you know, I'll take any opportunity I can get, right, and give it my 100%. And so I still absolutely love GRC. It was a great opportunity to develop my like report writing, communication skills, project management, actually understand the big picture of cyber, look at things from a more like macro perspective um, and understanding how, you know, one vulnerability, one system can actually impact the whole company. So that was really good. But after kind of two, three years experience, I looked at my kind of career trajectory and I would only go further up the ranks, further up into like security manager, SISO type positions, but I never had on, you know, on the tools experience in a technical role. And I feel that the most successful security managers and SISOs at one point in their career had on the tools experience and actually had a practical understanding of technology and cybersecurity rather than a conceptual understanding, which is what a lot of GRC people have. Because a lot of GRC people also come from accounting type backgrounds or information systems backgrounds. Like auditing and... Auditing, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, and they don't necessarily have a practical understanding of what they're recommending businesses do. And therefore, when they're delivered or implemented, they don't actually follow through with the original desired intent. And therefore, the risk reduction that they're trying to achieve never actually happens. And, you know, a lot of wasted money, money energy and resources. So I really wanted to kind of move into a more technical role the about you know about 12 to 18 months ago one of the pen testing directors asked if i wanted to join the team and i felt like i wasn't ready to be honest which was kind of more of a self-limiting belief 
to be honest. I kind of told myself I'm not technical enough yet to move, which, you know, in hindsight, I should have just taken it. Uh, but it was kind of a self-limiting belief I kind of imposed on myself. I didn't feel like I was ready yet. And then earlier this year in January, I messaged, uh, you know, Anthony Cosmanis, who's the new state director, replaced David Taylor. I said, you know, is there a possibility that I could move over again? He said, you know, probably not for one to two years. Uh, we just don't have any roles available. And then one of the managers resigned and he said, did you want to apply for this role? And I said, let's do, do it. So I made a formal application. I wrote a letter to him. I outlined all my kind of strengths, things that I think would add value to the team immediately. And also I kind of expressed my true and honest uh, areas of improvement and things that will require work. But I also made a commitment to how wide we would address those gaps. I said I would get the BSCP and the LSCP in six months and that I would basically, yeah, commit all my energy to it. So he took me on and then that's kind of the history from there. When you were feeling like you weren't ready and then you got to that point where you emailed, were you doing anything in that time? Like, were you, did you kind of at the time when you're like, I'm not ready, I got this offer, but I'm going to do some hack the box or I'm going to do some additional technical stuff to to get to the point where you're like, all right, I'm going to send the email. Or, or is it just more like you got to a point you're like, all right, I'm confident that I, like, I can learn? It's a bit of both. I mean, even three years ago before taking this on, uh, I was always the GRC guy that hanged out with the pen testing team. Like I did all the CTFs with them, like WSETF. I did my EJPT very early on about three years ago. And also at one point in time, I lived in a share house with two cyber six pen testers. So I was very much surrounded by them at all times. So I'm, I was always constantly developing my skills and doing course, doing hack the boss, et cetera. But there was never a moment in time where I was like, oh, now I know enough technically and I can apply. I kind of overcame that and realized that I will never feel like I've learned enough. And to this day, I still feel like I have imposter syndrome a little bit because I'm like, what if I don't know how to bypass this WAF, but someone else on my team does and, you know, all this sort of stuff. So what I realized is just that we all have very diverse skill sets, backgrounds, and we'll all never know enough. And eventually I just kind of did self work, I guess, and overcame that kind of self-limiting belief. And so I got to throw myself in the deep end and give this a go. Yeah, definitely, definitely the point of diverse teams, right? That someone will be able to understand something that you don't. And you want that. You don't want everyone the same. What's been a highlight of your career so far? And it, it, like, it doesn't have to be in cyber. Like, we can go back to when you're managing events, selling gold to the Chinese, anything. <laughs> That's right. I think the, the, the cyber security career has been the most enjoyable so far, for sure. I mean, I remember even really early on at Diamond Cyber, I did like a research project with a colleague who's been like now a really good friend of mine whose name's Jareth. We were playing around with Evil Jinx 2 for the first time. And we were basically, which is um, a reverse reverse proxy phishing page. So basically, for those that don't know, uh, it'll man in the middle traffic from like a real Office 365 login page to your phishing site. So when a user enters credentials, it'll check if they're actually valid rather than just saving them. And if it's valid, it'll pro prompt for MFA and then capture the, um, the cookie or the session token for that account. So you can log into that account and then bypass MFA. And um, we were playing around with it, having a lot of fun. The templates on GitHub for the Office 365 page didn't actually work, but we figured out how to like fix them and make them work. And we basically had a, a test dummy phone uh, that we used you know, to sign up for a SIM card. And uh, yeah, we just played around with stuff and got this fishy page working. And we're like, this is super cool. You know, and then found out that like on exploit.in forums, threat actors are actually using it in the wild and stuff, you know, like, which is pretty crazy, right? I guess that's the, the side of security blue team itself, right? Is that the cybersecurity industry is also making tools that the threat actors are using, right? It, it is kind of funny to think sometimes like stuff that we find so interesting and fun to play with. You're like, this, this is actually affecting people, but it's like what drives us to help people as well is that we're so interested in in how things work and having fun with it yeah it's like a i don't know yet paid to have fun pretty much is kind of like the way and and help people but it's definitely like it keeps you interested because it's fun yeah i think a second story which is a more recent kind of career highlight is last year i got the opportunity to work as the cybersecurity lead for a a lithium mine which was like completely greenfield 
it was kind of writing their cybersecurity strategy for the next two years. Uh, but because they were in construction mode and not operational yet, it was really difficult, right? How do you, you know, how do you secure our mine that has a whole heap of operational technology, which is not necessarily operating for mining, but is being tested and is being built like on the day as you go. So the from an asset management perspective, the you know scope of your environment is constantly changing. You know, how do you secure that? It was a really difficult situation that I'd never encountered before. But at the end of it, I felt like I'd achieved a pretty significant thing because um, they were also using converged IT and OT because they had right. you know, on-site like data centers. Yeah. yeah, like they had on-site data centers at their mine. There was also, you know, a camp. So all the bungalows or the workers are living there whilst building the mine. You know, crazy stories, things like that. One, one example is lightning strike hits the satellite for the NBN wireless connection and the mess hall for the workers loses FBOS internet so they can't buy beers. <laughs> and it's like, it's like a critical incident, you know? <laughs> but um, anyway, that's, that's just another side story. That's, uh, that's definitely true. The morale of the camp is very important to keep up. 100%. Yeah. So what about passion projects? Have you got any at the moment? And again, sci- this can be cyber, like non-cyber projects that you have that you're doing. Sure. Well, I mean, honestly, like I kind of live and breathe cyber. Like most of my hobbies are cyber. Like I just love cybersecurity so much, to be honest. I don't know if that sounds kind of cringe saying it out loud, but I'm really big into threat intelligence and threat actor research. Uh, I think from my days of, you know, building the bot farms and things like that for RuneScape and kind of getting involved in the underground communities of those kind of games. It really got me into like researching threat actors, looking at the, you know, cause I was also doing a bit of like bug abuse in games, selling bugs to other people, things like that. And getting exposed to the underground communities and understanding, yeah, all the stuff that goes on, you know, even back in, in the, in the RuneScape days, people, you know, making phishing pages to hack accounts, DDoS for, for higher services, you know, hitting off competitors in games so that you can get a, an advantage. Uh, you know, people would rat each other's computers to hijack their accounts, all this sort of stuff, getting exposed to that. So I always had an interest in it. Um, and more recently in the last few years, I've done a lot of research on, you know, dark markets like Agora and Alphabay and Dream before they got shut down. Also done a lot of research on like hack forums, raid forums, breach forums, you know, a lot of those have been taken down as well. But doing a lot of research on the threat actors that are on those sites, the ones that consistently appear on all of them, regardless of the sites getting seized and things like that. I'm currently working on uh, a bit of threat actor research that I'm hoping to present at either Blackout or Defcon next year. I've managed to get, uh, I, won't, I won't reveal too much just because it's kind of new and unpublished research, but I have managed to interview two threat actors that are wanted by the FBI. So that'll add a really unique touch to the presentation. Yeah. Well, I'll, I'll catch you there if you're presenting, and then uh, we can do another podcast where we talk about your talk. That'd be sick. Hopefully they accept it. <laughs> yeah, that sounds really cool. So I guess like that probably answers one thing for the next question, which is what is your goal for the next six to 12 months? Because I guess Black Hat Defcon's August. Correct. So yeah. roughly just under 12 months like but have you got anything else that's my primary goal i mean i've always wanted to speak at one of those events i've, I've spoken at a few conferences uh, like b-sides and asa and things like that and, and those have been those have been great but i remember distinctly like when i was in high school and you know everyone's giving you pressure you've got to figure out what you're going to do for the rest of your life your career and, and i kind of watched a defcon video i can't remember exactly which one it was i kind of watched this and was like wow that's my tribe you know what I mean? Like I felt this kind of sense of group and community and I, and I want to do something like that and kind of inspire the next generation in a way by doing a presentation at an event like that. So my goal, yeah, is to speak at either Black Hat or DEFCON next year. Uh, the submissions don't open until January, February, so I've got heaps of time. Uh, but I've been researching this particular topic for the last nine months, uh, so I've been putting a lot of work into it. Outside of that, my goal is honestly not to do any more certifications for quite a long time. Um, <laughs> kind of, you know, enjoy maybe getting a tan this summer rather than the tan from my monitor. Um, <laughs> but yeah, honestly, I just want to continue doing cool projects at work. Like, you know, getting getting exposed, you know, no, nothing beats on the job experience, honestly. 
certifications are cool and they're nice on your resume and things like that. But once you get a couple, you don't really need any more. Like quality over quantity is really important. It's you shouldn't just get a certification because you're like, oh, this looks cool. You know what I mean on my resume or, or whatever. You really want to focus on the skills you're developing. Another thing is that a lot of technical certifications feel like a CTF sometimes. They don't actually resemble what a like customer's environment is really like. And sometimes you can start developing all these skills that are like kind of relevant to actual pen testing or you know your actual job or career. So no more certs for me. Just want to focus on getting assigned to more projects and learning through experience. I love I love how that's a similar feeling. I look at Christmas time as like, oh, there's less customer work, so I have more time to like actually tick off some of the study that I wanted to do. And then I like blow through Christmas and I'm like, man, I wish I had more time to study because you just roll into like mid-January when everything kicks off again. Yeah, I'm surprised that like for you it's busy, uh, not busy because isn't like instant response to Christmas the busiest time of the year? So the last two, well, the last Christmas I was working for an insider threat management company so I and I was doing dev work, so it was more like focus, just delivering on on projects. And then this year, like I'll I'll probably do on call, but like ICS incident response is just like there's less of it. Like it's more serious when it happens, but there's it's not like like you have the Microsoft Exchange breaches or the Log4j breaches, and it like affects thousands of customers and everyone's popping off because threat actors are like just attacking networks you kind of only get ics incidents when if they've connected too much of their ot network and the it network is getting ransomware and it's like kind of bleeding into the ot side so then you kind of like roll in and help them with that or because there's so much more deliberate layered security in ics that it takes quite a skilled threat actor to target an ICS network. And so the most that they can kind of do is generally scan and maybe disrupt a little bit, but because it's, because the operators are so on top of their day-to-day job, they kind of notice it really quickly. Like it's not like it's a file server or an email server that sits there and no one's actually watching it. Like you have physical operators at ICS sites all the time watching their stuff. And if something happens, they're like, this is weird and they're getting much better now at like going hey we need to call our security team because we don't know what's going on and then usually the first thing they do is just pull the cables from between the IT network and OT network and it takes a lot to weaponize something that's automated so when you think of like sandworm um, or any of those kind of stories where it was like all these things cascading to do it all automated that takes like years of effort and resources and professionals to put that attack together the other attacks that you normally get like i said are like when they're so i didn't we're getting into a bit of meme being a bit of me now but that's that's all right that's like right. it's an i think it's an interesting story but what had happened was it was a it was an electric it was in the electric vertical and they'd connected their so they had an esxi server they had a, a half virtual half on-prem system for their network and their endpoints controlled and monitored the like substations and it went out to like houses and stuff as well but the ESXi server they gave remote access to through the firewall and it didn't have MFA so the creds had got like taken probably we didn't find the initial vector so they'd probably been compromised like by some access broker months ago and then Mm -hmm. a threat actor rolled in kind of poked around for a little bit and you could tell that they were looking for a file server to like encrypt the file server to their next store but because it was an ot network it was so foreign to them so they'd like gone into some of the physical machines and then like they would have seen programs that they'd never seen before because it's all like ics monitoring and control software and then they popped back out to the esxi server and then just ransomware the esxi server because it was like a, a variant of lockbit but they you could just tell that they didn't know the environment and so it was just lucky for them that they got like a ransomware operator that was looking for an IT network, but they'd popped in because they had a backup for their ESXi server. So once they'd figured it out and like we did the investigation, we're like, all right, it's not a serious threat actor. It's just some ransomware group that's in here trying to extort you. And there was like a, a ransom note and everything as well. 
they just like restored everything, put MFA on the on the firewall for remote access and everything, and kind of went along. And, and again, like the typical ransomware case, like it took about four weeks from incident to re- recovery. But that's kind of the stuff that will hit ICS places is when they've just got poor perimeter security and they've just allowed people straight in, which they do a lot for vendors, um, which is like when we do consulting engagements, it's like one of the the biggest findings that we have is like you need better controls on your vendor access because you're just blindly trusting them. That's a big thing in ICS security is uh, and another thing is that a lot of the like the companies or the critical infrastructure and the mining companies, et cetera, like it's usually in the vendor's contract that you must have this box that is like, you know, unadministered, remote, no MFA, or they don't provide the services at all. And so someone in finance goes, well, we need their service, so let's sign the contract. And, you know what I mean? Like, and there's nothing you can do because uh, as a security manager that's you know, in that role, you can't be like, no, let's just go with the other provider. You know, like for equipment specifically, there's like two providers for a lot of stuff. Or, or usually there's no, like, especially if it's been around for a while, it's very hard to switch providers because you, mm. you can't bring in a new provider and their stuff be backwards compatible with the old vendor that's there. You need to literally rip out everything and like recommission the whole plant. Yeah. When we were, when I was working at this lithium mine, obviously we had pretty, we were lucky because we could build like secure from secure architecture from the ground up and like the different, some of the distributed control systems, like designs are actually pretty good uh, compared to like, you know, PLC and SCADA like from ages ago um, and this kind of disjointed clumped network together. Um, but I've heard from some of the bigger mining companies, friends that work there, where, you know, the mining company grows through acquisitions and they've got 500 yeah. mines they own. Yeah. Every single mine tech stack is completely different and it's a complete nightmare. <laughs> but then they want to they want to centralize all their metrics so then they connect everything between all those different mines and it's all, they're all like, oh, it's just metrics going through. But when you, when you really get down to it, it's like, an open RDP connection that they've got like a transfer software and they've got like unrestricted file transfer between like all of their mines. It's, um, yeah. The, the funny thing is, is like from an incident response perspective, you never see the people who do security good because if you're doing it poorly, you're the lowest hanging fruit. And so you're going to get hit. So the companies that are, are doing it well, we never get to see and be like, oh, like it was a near miss because they probably handled it internally and they're like, oh, we've got good security, like we're good to go. It's the ones like instant response you roll in and it's like everything's hosed because they just, they were like, oh, we've got a firewall, but then the firewall had like an any allow all rule or something or they've got no MFA on their VPN or whatever. Yeah, honestly, that's one thing. I mean, from the, even the pen testing side of things, is like, you know, in the couple of years of working in GRC, interviewing clients, like risk assessment workshops, you know, understanding all the type of attack chains that could possibly happen, and, uh, and you know, assessing likelihood of impact, all that sort of stuff. And then you go into a pen test and you're like, holy shit, like people actually are still not using NFA. <laughs> people are still using, like, Oh, if I change my user agent to uh, you know Android device, I can bypass MFA completely. Like all this crazy shit. Uh, but you're just like, is this real? You know, it's 2023. Like, feels like I'm reading an article in 2020. You know, but that's okay. I love how you still come across just like end of life Windows systems, and you're like, people kind of think they're just like, oh, we don't. When you're like, oh, do you have any old systems in your environment? And they're like, oh no, we we don't have any Windows um, XP. And you're like, that's not end of life anymore. Like end of life's moved on like i think server 2019 just hit end of life in like june or something so you can get like extended support but if you're not paying for extended support like you should have upgraded by now and i mean even uh, windows 2008 revision 2 uh, it's still extremely common um and and there's so much on that there's so many it's completely end of life and unsupported but there's so many like privasks on that but on that machine yeah, I mean, I've seen some crazy stuff. I mean, even recently I've seen, you know, Debian hosts expose the internet running like a 2006 version of Debian, you know, open SSH2, like crazy stuff, you know. Um, that's all right. We'll <laughs> say that for another day. Oh, it's funny saying that. We, we came across one the other week. They were running um, CentOS 4. 
still, and it was connected to their IT network. And we're like, why why are you running CentOS 4? And they're like, oh, it's because the software that we need to run our environment doesn't run on anything past CentOS 4. And the vendor won't, the company won't upgrade it. So they literally need to run this box. And I'm like, why is it connected to anything? Like, literally just segregate your network if you've got this extremely vulnerable system. Yeah. Anyway, this could be a whole other podcast about like talking yeah. to cu- and and talking to customers when you're in an instant response and you're like, hey, do this. They're like, yep, we'll do it. And it's done straight away. When you're in consulting and you tell them to do it, they're like, yeah, we may be able to get to it in the next 24 months. And you're like, Ugh. that's pretty much right. Um, it's very true. Yeah. And another thing is, I mean, if you put yourself in the perspective of a security manager who's getting the pen test report with all the findings and things like that, um, typically, you know, their ability to actually enforce the business to actually like go and change things, particularly if security is like separate from IT in terms of like organization structure, um, their, their ability to influence like changes is significantly difficult. Whereas when you're having an incident, right, or typically reporting to the sizer directly, and the sizer goes, go make these fucking changes, and then everyone goes, okay, yes, we will. You know, but if you're a security manager or maybe you're even a project manager that's got a report because your product is getting, you know, doing getting its test done prior to going production, your ability to actually influence a lot of the changes is like greatly reduced. And so someone just goes, risk accepted, <laughs> you know what I mean? And then it gets onto production, and then two years later, someone pops it, you know? So... A lot of it is actually people and culture influencing decisions and things like that that people don't think about. Yeah, it's really funny. It's definitely its own topic, and I should probably do an episode on that with a panel of people that have just experienced this pain. Yeah, for sure. So we'll we'll jump ahead. What do you do? Like you said, kind of you're involved in cyber all up. You love it. You just live and breathe it. But how do you get away? What do you do to unwind? That's not cyber. That's a good question because honestly, for a while there, there was nothing besides cyber. <laughs> By a while, I mean like a good couple of years. But, yeah. uh, honestly, like something that I've been doing the last kind of one or two years, which I really enjoyed, is doing like sauna, like going to the sauna. Oh, yeah. Gym. Yep. I found it really, really good. It, it's kind of forced meditation. Uh, you can't have a device in there, you can't have anything. You know, you're in a sauna for a good 15 to 20 minutes. It's quite a lot of mental resilience. Once you get to around the 10 minute mark at about 70 degrees, 90 degrees, you know, you really, you got to push yourself to stay there because it starts to get a little bit like uncomfortable. Not, you know, like if you're getting chest pains or you're dizzy, you should probably get out, you know what yeah. I mean? But if you're, if it's just like, oh, this is uncomfortable, I want to get out, you know, you should just push through it. Particularly if you go to a sauna, like this, at the gym I go to, there's two saunas. There's a silent sauna, so no speaking. And then there's like a, a speaking sauna. The silent one is good for when you want to make a decision in your life. Like if you're not sure where you want to go, you need to do some reflection. I go in there, silent sauna, and just kind of sweat it out, think about it, and, you know, yeah, come to a decision on what I want to do. Now, on the other side, the talking sauna is good because you get to talk to people you don't know, hear about their life, their background, et cetera, yeah. and you meet some unique people. So it's good. That's fun. pretty cool. Yeah, that's a nice way. I, that's a really nice way to unwind. All right, so we'll we'll wrap up now. We're at nearly the top of the hour, but I just wanted to leave off, which is the same thing I ask everyone to finish. What recommendations do you currently have for people that are outside the industry and considering to make a change into cyber? And it, it could be GRC, pen testing, whatever. Yeah, I think there's a variety of people that like want to get into security in different perspectives. There's people that you know, they've seen it on the news or they've seen a breach or they've had a family member affected and they're like, what is this space? I want to learn more about it. And they kind of want generalists. They don't really know what they want to get into yet. And then you've got people who have done like a boot camp, done a course, are struggling to get a job and don't really kind of know how to get that first job. So I'll kind of give my advice to kind of the more general person. So I, I do a lot of mentoring. I've kind of, I've mentored about a hundred students in the last couple of years, 50 in person, 50 online. And the kind of two things that I tell people to do is develop a goal related to skills development and a goal related to networking. So I say that networking gets you the job interview, skills gets you the job. A lot of people go all in on skills and then end up with a degree, some certs, et cetera, and can't get a job because now they're applying for jobs that are highly competitive. Now to give you the data, the last Cyber Six Academy, we had over 1500 applicants and we had like maybe 80 positions. So it's extremely competitive. It's extremely difficult to get a job. I only got my job because I you know, met someone at a conference and 
said, hey, can, can I you know, speak to your contacts and things like that? So work on skills and networking. When it comes to networking, there's a whole heap more things available now than there was five years ago. It's heaps of conferences, B-sides in basically every city in Australia, monthly meetups. With Join ASA, which is the Australian Information Security Association. They have monthly branch meetings. They're really good. They have presentations. Really figure out what your local market of vendors, consultancies, and kind of professionals are and mentors. Another one is if you're female, check out the Australian Women in Security yeah, Network. I'm, I'm a mentor for that. And another plug, join my Discord. Uh, there's plenty of cyber professionals there to network with. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Another thing I would recommend is staying up to date with cybersecurity news. So, like, review cybersecurity news, whether it's itnews.com.au or you know, hacker news, things like that. Really, there's kind of a few things to look at. One, from an Australian perspective, but also US as well, what kind of like, like regulatory changes are happening that impacts the industry at a macro level? Like in Australia, we had the Security of Critical Infrastructure Act update, which you know classified certain businesses that are privately owned as systems of national significance and a whole bunch of requirements were put on them because of that. Understand, you know, what type of vulnerabilities are being exploited in the wild. Last year, we had like Log4j. Recently, we've had like Citrix NetScaler and we've had Barracuda email security gateway zero days exploited by Chinese actors. But also do research into the history of the cybersecurity industry. Understand the big attacks that have happened in the last 10 to 15 years and how they've shaped the sector. It'll be really important for context. A recommended book is called The Hacker and the State by... Ben uh, Butchernan. I might send it to you for putting the show notes. And Visual Threat Intelligence by Thomas Rockier. He's a security researcher for Microsoft based in, I think, Melbourne. There's also really good blogs to check out. Mandiant, Project Zero, Google, uh, Threat Analysis Group, Google, and Intel 471. They're really good. And yeah, some of the big cyber attacks that have happened are things like, you know, Shamoon, the Saudi Arabia, uh, Saudi Aramco, sorry, like the biggest attack on an oil conglomerate in the world. You know, you've got like the North Korea Guardians of Peace attack on Sony Entertainment um, because of that movie that came out, the interview. You know, you've got WannaCry. A lot of people hear the word WannaCry, but they don't understand the background. You know, they know what Eternal Blue is, but they didn't know that Eternal Blue was developed by the NSA, but then leaked by the Shadow Brokers. And then more recently, like Colonel Pipeline ransomware attacks and things like that. Having an understanding of all that history is super important. On the skills side, I would say personally avoid boot, boot camps. I've seen a lot in, you know, not only social media, but just from personal anecdotal experiences, people paying eight, ten, twelve thousand Australian dollars for like, you know, sixteen to twenty week boot camps. They promise, you know, six figure entry level jobs, all this sort of stuff. And people people pay. Like I've spoken to people that have paid and, and gone on finance to pay these. Things. I would honestly say because like my my current mentee. He was going through, I won't, I won't out them, but they do very good advertising and they're like, do these five certs and then guaranteed kind of a job. And I'm like, I, I, how do you guarantee a job if you're not giving them out? Like if you want to do certs and you want to do technical skills, like I, I think the networking piece, especially if you're a generalist, has to come first. You need to network with people in the industry and understand, like you said, like set a goal for where you want to be and then look at the technical skills you need to get to a level to just get the on the like get the job right and get through the interview because then you'll learn so much more on the job and to do that you don't need to spend thousands of dollars you don't need to spend any money no you really can do everything like I, there's definitely pathways that if you spend like a couple hundred dollars it might accelerate it a little bit just because it's like better access to labs or better access to like some content that's better organized. But I had someone reach out the other day and they're just like, oh, like I, they weren't even in cyber, but they wanted to do a job. And they're like, what do you think if I do this SANS course? And I was like, are you self-funding that? And I was like, don't do that. Like do they, they wanted to be a pen tester. And I was like, go look at like the cyber mentor or something, or, or just do hack mm. the box and watch like IPSEC videos. Don't go to a SANS course. Like, at all don't never pay for a sans course yourself like if a company pays for it yeah that's yeah. the first rule company yeah. pays for it 100 percent. go to a sans course because it's like really good condensed knowledge in a five-day course but i would never pay for it myself completely agree with you i would only do a sans course if it was for something that there's no other competing well-known 
industry recognized certificate for. Like threat intelligence, there's basically zero industry certificates for. Uh, the GCTI is like the only well-recognized threat intel cert. Or like the GCI, uh, GI, uh, the, in, the industrial control system one. Yeah, that's true. There's a whole yeah, bunch of really There's nothing ones. else in the industry that, for that, yeah. Yeah. Like if you're going to do the GXPN, you may as well do the OSCP and the OSEP, which will cost you half the amount. Especially pen testing. Like there's just so many good free resources, so many good cheap certs. Like it's so competitive in that market at the moment that, yeah, like if you're spending like more than a hundred bucks on a course, you're kind of wasting your money. Yeah, unless it's the OSCP, I'd say, which is like the most recognized probably pen testing cert. You know? But you don't need to jump to that to get But then, well. yeah, I, I would say like, especially these days because when i did oscp it was when hack the box was starting out there was no other competing certs i would only suggest someone go do their oscp now if it was a requirement for the job like if it was like or highly desirable if it was like highly desirable oscp i'd be like yeah okay go do it but other than that like you can learn so much just off everything else yeah that's a big that's an important thing as well as a lot of people particularly starting out they get really I think about the cert. What is the thing that I'm going to get at the end of this? Or what can I put on my resume that's going to get me the job? But they completely forget about the whole point of doing the cert, and that's to learn the skills. It's about the journey. Because the reality is, is like I've interviewed people that have all the certs and just can't answer the most basic questions in their job interview. So the certs mean nothing, really. I mean, the certs are cool, nice things to have, and you, you put them on a frame and you put them on the wall, but... You know, and, and it's a testament to your effort and things like that. You got a nice little shiny sticker at the end. But the journey of learning the knowledge and applying the knowledge, you know, like technical exam, that is what is super important. Other things that I would recommend outside of certs is also a really good website for people listening to look at certs is Paul Jeremy's website. I think, I think I've linked that before, but I'll link it again in the show notes. It can be a bit overwhelming. So make sure you speak to someone that's in your local sector and ask them what you should, they should think of the certs that you want to do. Because not all certs are equal as well, uh, despite being in the same level of difficulty. A good example, CEH versus OSCP. No one likes CEH. And if you look at it on a resume, you actually think worse of someone sometimes. But that's okay. 100%. I, only because, so when I was in defense, I did CEH. And it was literally a page-by-page advertisement for tools that just paid to be in the course. And I like, I didn't learn anything. I was like, I just learned the cert, the tools that are in the industry. And then, yeah, it was horrible. One thing is, the things that people don't think about doing is doing an information security writing course. A lot of people, particularly like, if you're, I mean, maybe you can speak to digital forensics, but a lot of people focus just on the skills and not on like producing the deliverable, which is what the customer actually pays for, particularly for consulting, right? Writing the best report is like telling a story of what happened, how you got there, what your recommendations were, what your conclusion is. Chris Sanders, who's a big speaker from SANS CTI Summit, he has a information security writing course, $100, really good. Another thing that I recommend people doing is looking at building your own research lab on Windows Active Directory. John Hammond has a really good video online, which is about 20 minutes long. He talks you, talks to you about how to build, you know, not only build the environment, but build like a blue team workstation and like a red team workstation. Because I didn't know what Active Directory was until like second or third year of cybersecurity. You know what I mean? Because I came in through GRC, right? And it really is the kind of most important component. You know, operating systems and networking are really the most important things in cybersecurity, which are actually IT skills, right? And a lot of people yeah, forget that having an understanding of yeah, operating systems, networking, and Active Directory, on-prem, Azure AD is so important because majority of organizations, what is it? 95% of the Fortune 500, you know, 95% of all companies. I mean, I've never encountered a company in five years that has not had Windows Active Directory. I've known companies that their endpoints are like Mac or, or something else, but they still are running an Active Directory. Yeah, I mean, the, and like the only situation I can think of that wasn't Active Directory, which is kind of still as Active Directory, is Office 365, and they've got a SharePoint, and they've got email, and that's it. And that's their entire company. And they have a website, you know what I mean? But that's Azure AD still, so... Yeah, because they're still they're still authing with their like O three six five credentials to all of that, so it's just all cloud based. Yeah, yeah, it's true, and yeah, definitely the listeners don't. There's a lot to digest there. Take your time. It's like a slow 
for all of us, I think it's a slow progress of learning. It's not like burn yourself out within a couple of months because, yeah, I, I would say, Jacob, you're probably the same as me, but we're both still on the journey of learning even I even now. And we've been both been in the industry for a few few years now. So yeah, I mean, I remember when I first day at Diamonds Lava, first cybersecurity job, sitting in the same like office booth as the pen testers, and not having a single idea what they're talking about. Constant acronyms, you know. I have no idea what they're talking about. You know. I mean, yeah, it's kind of entertaining thinking about it now back then because. DHCP, WAF, you know, all this stuff. The only thing I knew was IP address. That was basically <laughs> it. But yeah, you know, we all start somewhere. I'm still learning today. The, the biggest thing in cybersecurity is having determination, having an actual curiosity, and being able to kind of have self discipline to continue learning because, you know, you will get into a situation where you really have to troubleshoot your way through something that you have no idea how to overcome. And it's that kind of resilience and commitment that gets you through. And actually enjoying it and having a passion for it will make you last. First question that we ask in every interview is why cybersecurity, particularly for entry-level roles. And the worst answers are job security, big salary. It's the next biggest thing, you know. I think, you know, these people aren't going to last five minutes when their VM, like, crashes (laughs) for some reason. You know what I mean? Like, so the biggest thing is, you know, explaining personal story, why you got into the industry. It could be anything, you know what I mean? It could be a family member's a victim of cybercrime. It could be RuneScape bot farms. It could be anything. What we're looking for is passion, curiosity, and yeah, self-discipline and an eager, eager to learn. That's kind of the biggest thing. All right, mate. Well, we're at the top of the hour. I want to thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure chatting to you and learning about your journey from the dark side of GRC now into the light of pen testing. It's great to, to have you on that side of the fence for sure. But again, thanks. Thanks so much for joining, mate. No worries. It was great to chat. So for all of our listeners, nearly all of my content is free, but if you want to support, make sure you subscribe to the podcast, like and subscribe to my YouTube channel. You can also check out my merch from my website, hardlyadequate.com, where you can also get links for all of the content in the show. Thanks for listening, and I'll catch you all later on. Bye.